Episode 12 of By Our Own Hands On Galbalie, Gabali, the name means town of the foreigner. Gaul is from an old Irish word for foreigner, which dates to an ancient time when Gaels were foreigners. The term persisted long after Gaels had ceased to be considered foreign. It was in use when Normans arrived and built the town that is now known by its Irish name and inhabited by the descendants of those Normans. I told him, at one time, Gael was synonymous with all things foreign, and then it became synonymous with all things Irish. He had smiled at me, but then I told him that this will never happen with the English. The Gael became Irish, and the Irish became Gaels. The English have refused to become Irish, and my people have not become English. We haven't even been given a chance to do so. Instead, we have all become exiles to one degree or another. We are exiles in our own land, and we are exiles in distant lands. His smile had faded when I had told him this yesterday. He was thoughtful and quiet, but I could see that he was not offended. He offered to call on me the following day. I readily agreed. Mrs. O'Donnell had been given a day to visit an old friend in Letterkenny. Whenever she takes a day, all of the servants are given a day, too. Mrs. Matterin is still gone. I am alone. I know Dr. Foxlow well enough to be certain that he will not consider it improper to call on me. He won't mind that I have no one to wait on us. He will probably offer to assist me. He is not a typical man of his class, and it is a relief. As much as I enjoy his company, I have to remind myself constantly that he is a close friend of Mrs. Adair. She is not my friend, and yet we share a friend. Their friendship is not unusual, but my friendship with the doctor is highly unusual, and it is her doing. It was she who brought us together, she who is more likely to condemn me than any other soul on the face of the earth. I am certain that I am correct in this assumption, even though she has never made her displeasure known. I must be correct. I must never forget this, and I must remain on my guard. I can hear his horse outside of my window. I will speak with him again today. He seems eager to know more. I wonder how much of my story he already knows. I walk towards the door and open it before he can reach the door. He gives me a broad smile. He does not seem the slightest bit surprised that I am opening the door to the house and Mrs. O'Donnell is not rushing to greet him. Good morning, Aoife, he says. I step back to allow him to enter the house. Good morning, Dr. Foxlow, I say. I take his coat and carry it to the cloakroom. I am surprised that he is following me. I turn to glance at him. Sir, I say, may I presume that Mrs. O'Donnell has finally been given a day of rest, he asks. Yes, she has. All of the servants have been given a day. If she takes a day, the entire staff gets a day, I say. In that case, I can hang my own coat, he says, taking his coat from me. I can't help but smile. Are you going to help make the tea, too? I ask. I just might, he says. 
I walk towards the kitchen and I'm only mildly surprised to hear him following me. I don't even bother to turn around. I am in the kitchen for only a few moments before he enters. I am not going to argue with him. The tea tray is on the counter, I say, motioning towards the far counter. He gives me another broad smile and walks over to the tray. I grab the kettle, which I've heated just before his arrival. I pour the water into the teapot and see out of the corner of my eye that he has begun searching for food to place onto our tray. Forgive me, I did not eat my morning meal, he says with some embarrassment. I will prepare a lunch after our tea, I say, with as much ambivalence as possible, as if it were the most normal of situations to have a gentleman in our kitchen searching for something to eat. He places some of Mrs. O'Donnell's scones onto a plate. Before I can finish making the tea, I see that he has found butter and jam. Perhaps I will not have to hurry to make a lunch. I place the teapot, sugar, and milk onto the tray. He fills the remaining room on the tray with the food he has collected. The tray is full, too full. He simply picks it up and carries it into the morning room. I follow him. He manages the door before I can open it for him. I realize that he has done this before. He must be a lifetime bachelor if he can find food so quickly in a kitchen and carry a tray spilling over with food without having an accident even when opening a door. We are soon seated opposite each other in the same places where we have sat before. He has managed to make our tea and place scones in front of each of us with a deftness that would impress Mrs. O'Donnell. I cannot help but stare at him in amazement. He just smiles and bites into a scone. It is late in the morning. He must be very hungry. I sip my tea and find myself compelled to speak. Dr. Foxlow, I would like to continue my story, I say. He nods and takes another bite of his scone. I take a sip of my tea and continue. When the sheep arrived, the effects were felt immediately. The Scotsmen busied themselves capturing and impounding as many of the tenants' animals as they could. It was a priority for them. Not surprisingly, they quickly became very unpopular. Mrs. O'Donnell told me that the Scotsmen had taken to carrying guns in case any of the tenants tried to attack them. She thought this was unnecessary, because our region had always been a peaceful one. It did not have a history of agrarian violence, as did some of the regions in Ireland. After Mrs. O'Donnell told me this, I went searching for Sean. I stepped outside after my morning meal, but was quickly called by Mrs. O'Donnell. Aoife, you will catch your death if you step outside, she hollered. I returned to the kitchen. It had been a few days since I had been able to venture outside. The rains had been steady and heavy. There was even talk of flooding. I had only seen Sean in the early mornings, at mealtimes, and in the evenings. I missed spending my days with him. Mrs. O'Donnell handed me a small tray with tea, bread, and butter. Take this to your mother. She is eating her morning meal in her room, she said. I was not surprised because Mr. Adair had been gone for a couple of days and mother had little to do with the other household servants. 
Her duties, which had been light to begin with, had dwindled even further. After a few months at the Glebe house, some had begun to whisper that her only duty was to be a discreet companion to Mr. Adair. From what I could see, this was true enough. I took the tray and made my way to Mother's room. I had not seen her for a couple of days. I reached her room and knocked softly on the door. She did not answer. I knocked again. She still did not answer. I placed the tray onto the ground and knocked once more. I heard a noise. It was a low groan. I took a deep breath and opened the door. The room was well lit with sunlight pouring into the window. I saw Mother lying on her bed. Her face was pale and sweaty. Her eyes were closed. I quietly walked towards her. Mother, I am sorry to disturb you, I began. As soon as I rounded her bed, I saw that her covers and nightclothes were stained with blood. It looked as if her stomach had bled through her clothing and the bedding. I covered my mouth and ran from the room. I almost tripped over the tray I had left outside of Mother's room. I ran all the way to the kitchen. Mrs. Barry and Mrs. O'Donnell were busy cleaning. They were startled when I ran inside. Something is wrong with Mother, I shouted. They both stopped what they were doing and followed me. We all ran to Mother's room. Mrs. Barry entered and stood near the foot of Mother's bed with her hand over her mouth. Mrs. O'Donnell went to Mother and began smoothing her hair away from her sweaty forehead. Tell Seamus to fetch the doctor, Mrs. O'Donnell said. Mrs. Barry stood rooted in her place with her hand still placed over her mouth. She was almost as pale as Mother. I hurried out of the room. I ran through the house and out the back door where I knew I was likely to find him. When I spotted him, he was walking towards the house. I started frantically motioning for him to come to me. As soon as he saw me, he immediately began to run. On reaching me, he grabbed me and picked me up off of the ground. Aoife, what is wrong, he said. Mother is not well. Mrs. O'Donnell said for you to get the doctor, I said. Old man Seamus carried me to the door. Tell Mrs. O'Donnell that I am leaving now, he said. I returned to Mother's room. Mrs. O'Donnell was wiping Mother's forehead with a cool cloth when I entered. Mrs. O'Donnell looked at me. I simply nodded. Mrs. Barry gently took me out of the room. I spent the rest of the day sitting outside a Mother's room. I watched as Mrs. Barry and Mrs. O'Donnell came and went. I saw the doctor arrive. I saw him leave. I watched as Kate McDermott brought linens and I watched as she left with linen stained with blood. I could do nothing but watch. After the doctor left, Mrs. O'Donnell left the room. She crouched down and stroked my hair. Your mother is unwell, but she will be well soon. She is not going to die. She is sleeping now. You can visit her tomorrow, she said. Does she have a fever? I asked. I knew that many people died of fevers. Mrs. O'Donnell shook her head. She will be well soon, love, she said. I returned to my room. I remained in my room until it was time for my evening meal. I did not want to go to the kitchen. I wanted to see Mother. 
I wanted answers. Sean entered my room carrying a tray. He had brought my dinner and his own. I was quiet. I wasn't sure if Sean could tell me what had happened to Mother. I assumed that he was just as ignorant as I was. He placed our tray on my table. He left the room and returned shortly with the chair from his own room. We sat opposite each other. He spoke first. Aoife, I don't know precisely what happened to your mother. I heard the McDermott sisters whispering, but I don't understand, he said. What did they say? I asked. He was quiet for a moment. Sean, please tell me, I said. They said that she had a baby inside of her, and now it is dead. They also said that she can't have any more babies, he said. I was stunned. I don't understand, I said. Aoife, I know this much. Babies are born to married people. At least that is what others say should happen. They grow in their mother's wombs. If there is a problem, a baby can die before it is born. Sometimes this can be very bad. Sometimes a woman can't have any more babies after one has died in her womb, he said. Mother had a baby, I asked, struggling to comprehend this. That is what Kate McDermott said, he said. I knew that Mother had behaved as if she were married, even though she was not, and I knew that married people had babies. I realized that she could have had a baby inside of her, but I still couldn't believe it. I didn't want to. I knew that an unmarried mother was considered a disgrace. You can't speak of this, he added. I nodded. If Mr. Adair learns of this, he will be angry. He may even turn your mother out, and you too, he said. Why? I asked. Sean looked down and did not meet my eyes. Because it is shameful, he said. My cheeks burned and tears sprang to my eyes. Mother is shameful, I said in a whisper. My mother was shameful too, he said. I stared at him. Now stop crying and eat your dinner, he said, forcing a smile. I obeyed and began eating. My mind raced with what he had just told me. I suddenly understood why his name was not O'Dowling. He had told me before that he was a bastard, but I hadn't understood the term. Now I finally understood that his name was his mother's name. She too had behaved as if she were married when she was not. The following day, the rains finally stopped. When I spoke with Mrs. O'Donnell during my morning meal, she told me that mother was not to be disturbed. Once I had finished eating, I went to the stables. I hadn't seen Sean because Mrs. O'Donnell had fed him earlier. I assumed that she had another errand for him, or possibly both of us. I was surprised to learn that I was mistaken. When I reached the stables, Sean was walking out of the stables carrying two empty baskets. Neither were very large. He handed one to me. He looked at my dress and shook his head. Aoife, you will need your coat, he said. Where are we going? I asked. Didn't Mrs. O'Donnell tell you? He asked. No, I said. She had me start my chores early so that we'd have some time to pick berries, he said with a broad smile. But it is not yet Easter, I said. 
Mrs. O'Donnell said that our temperatures have been mild and the rains have been heavy, so the berries will be in bloom, he said. I was thrilled. I ran back to the house and raced to my room. I returned in no time at all, wearing my coat. We ran around the side of the house and were soon on the same road we had taken to visit Mr. and Mrs. Murray. I knew exactly where we were going. If we pick enough berries, do you think Mrs. Berry will make us a pie? I asked. Yes, but we'll have to pick a lot of berries, he said. I skipped ahead of him towards the dry bog near the forest. I knew that it probably resembled the wet bog lands after the rains we had endured. I soon reached it and immediately started looking for the delicious blue bilberries so favored by Mrs. Berry. Mother called the bilberry a frahan. She always made sure to take me with her on frahan Sunday, the last Sunday in July, when everyone picked them. They were sweet, dark, and tiny. They were also fragile. Mother often scolded me for being careless while we picked them. I knew that I must handle them with great care, or I would have stained fingers and no pie. The heather was still browned from the winter. It would not bloom with its flowers for at least another two months. The peat odor from the bog was intense, a combination of wet earth and rot. I didn't mind. It was worth suffering the stench to find the berries. I hoped that Mrs. O'Donnell was correct. Sean reached me just as I spotted my first berries. I carefully picked them and placed them in the basket. I was relieved to see that the basket had been lined with a thick, soft towel to protect the berries. I soon found more and carefully stepped around the bog to reach them. I knew my shoes would be drenched by the time I finished, but I didn't care. As I walked about picking berries, I found that they were concentrated in an area that was more directly exposed to the sun in a clearing. I had a good view of Laove from the clearing. I watched the lake for a few moments and then returned my attention to my task. Sean worked steadily nearby at another area that was abundant with berries. We both continued to pick berries for at least an hour when I heard the sound of a splash. It was too loud to have been caused by a fish. Sean and I exchanged looks, but neither of us spoke. He slowly walked towards the clearing where I stood. He motioned to me to be quiet. I was perfectly still. He reached me and looked over the lake. His eyes widened. I turned towards the lake and followed his gaze. My eyes widened, too. Three men were in a small, flat boat. They were rowing towards the largest of the islands on Laove. I craned my neck to get a better view. Even from my distant vantage point, I could see that the island was tiny. I knew that no one could possibly live on it. It was little more than an overgrown rock. I looked towards the flat boat and saw that one of the men was Mr. Barry. All three were behaving suspiciously, as if they didn't belong on a lake. Why are they rowing to that island, I asked. Sean smiled sheepishly. I know why, he said. Why, I asked. It is a secret, he said. Why, I shouted. Hush, Aoife, he said. Mr. Barry turned around and looked about. Sean and I both crouched down. 
we slowly raised ourselves again after a few moments. I noticed then that the men were crouching too. I returned Sean's smile. I was certain that Mr. Adair had forbidden his tenants from fishing just as he had forbidden them from hunting. They were defying him. Good for them and may the devil take Mr. Adair, I said under my breath. Sean did not reply. I wasn't sure if he had heard me. Mrs. O'Donnell had said that the prohibition against hunting was silly because none of the tenants owned guns. None of them had ever used traps. They were not going to hunt for the simple reason that they did not have the means to do so. But they did have small boats. I hoped fervently that they were not caught by any of the Scotsmen. Sean and I spent another hour picking berries before we started back towards the house. We were on the road for less than a few minutes when Mr. Murray rode towards us. He slowed his horse when he saw us. He came to a stop once he reached us. Sean, Aoife, good day, he said. He leapt off of his horse, but kept one of his hands on the reins. Good day, sir, Sean answered. I could see that Sean was nervous. Good day, sir, I said. Are the berries already in bloom? he asked, looking at our baskets and stained fingers. Yes, sir, Sean said. Did you two see anything unusual? Mr. Murray asked. He stared at me when he asked. I became very uncomfortable. I looked at the ground. Aoife, did you see anything unusual? Mr. Murray asked again. I looked at Sean. He gave me a warning look. Good children tell the truth, Mr. Murray added. He smiled warmly as he spoke to me. I felt my cheeks burning. I think Mr. Adair should let his tenants fish, I blurted out. I looked at Sean, but he looked away from me. I do too, dear, Mr. Murray said. He walked closer to me and bent down. Did you see someone fishing in the lake, he asked. I nodded. I don't want Mr. Adair to be angry with them, I said in a pleading voice. Don't upset yourself. Mr. Adair's tenants are welcome to fish in any of the lakes, he said. He rose. He looked at me thoughtfully. They were fishing in Lauvay, he asked. I nodded. I felt Sean's eyes on me. I glanced at him, and he gave me a disapproving look, which confused me. Suddenly I was unsure of what I had witnessed. I didn't want to say any more, but Mr. Murray stared directly at me. His stare intimidated me. Did they have a boat? Mr. Murray asked. Yes, sir, I said. Well, that is no trouble at all. When you see them, you tell them that they can fish in Lauvay whenever they please, he said, his smile broadening. I nodded again. I looked at Sean. He kept his eyes on the ground. Run along, children. I'm going to have a small stroll along the lakeside. If I find any berries, I'll be sure to let you know when I call on Mr. Adair tomorrow, he said. We didn't speak. We watched him walk away with his horse. He called over his shoulder to us. Make certain to tell Mr. Adair that I will be calling on him tomorrow. We started walking back to the house. We were both silent for a few minutes until Sean broke the silence. You should not have said 
anything to Mr. Murray, he said. I could see that he was angry and disappointed. My heart broke. I started to cry. I'm sorry, I don't understand, I said. Sean softened at the sight of my tears. Don't cry, Aoife, he said in a soothing tone. I sniffed and wiped my eyes. I gave him a faint smile. You just need to remember that we cannot trust any of the Scots, he added. I'll remember that, I said. We walked the remainder of the way in silence. I knew that the men were involved in something other than fishing. I didn't know what I had witnessed. I had a sickening feeling that it was something clandestine and that my words would prove to be the undoing of the men we had watched. I thought of Mrs. Barry, and my heart sank. The next day, Mr. Murray arrived just after Mr. Adair's morning meal. He carried a small bottle in one of his hands. It looked exactly like one of the bottles of liquor that Sean and I used to see Mr. O'Dowling drink from when he believed that no one was watching him. I had often heard that the Scots could drink even more than my own country's men, but it still seemed outrageous for someone to be carrying a bottle of liquor at that hour while visiting a gentleman. Mr. Murray spent very little time in the house before he left with Mr. Adair. They briskly walked out of the front door. I watched from the window as old man Seamus saddled up two horses. Soon Mr. Adair and Mr. Murray were riding away. They appeared to be in a hurry. I walked away from the window and passed the study room. The door was still open. I was shocked to see Mother seated on a sofa. I knew that I was not to enter Mr. Adair's study because it was Mr. Adair's special room, so I looked about before entering. Mother's eyes widened when she saw me. Her face was so pale, almost deathly white. Despite that, she still looked beautiful. Her hair and clothing were neat. Two unfinished meals were before her on a low table near the sofa. I looked about the room. It was richly furnished with two sofas, multiple chairs, tables, cabinets, and fine rugs. Bookshelves lined one wall, a large desk was in a corner near a window, an open gun cabinet was near the desk. I could see several guns were lying on the desk. The room was cluttered. Aoife, you are not supposed to be here, Mother said in a voice that was almost a whisper. Her tone was not unkind. I could see that she was concerned, but she was not angry. Mr. Dare has left with Mr. Murray. He won't know that I visited you, I said. She immediately looked away. I could see that she was embarrassed and possibly ashamed, too. I flushed when I realized what I'd said. Now she knew that I knew. I knew that she was Mr. Adair's and that it was more important for her to be his discreet companion than it was for her to be my mother. She returned her gaze to me. Her face softened as if she were about to cry. Come here, Aoife, she said. I slowly walked to her. She stroked my face. Are you well, Ma? I asked. She nodded and smiled. She stroked my hair. Yes, I am quite well. 
you must promise me that you will never again enter Mr. Adair's study unless I tell you that you can, she said. I looked into her eyes. She had not spoken to me for days, and her primary concern was for Mr. Adair's wishes. I was jealous and hurt. You and Mr. Adair are not married. You behave as if you were. It is a shameful thing, I said. Mother's smile faded. She stared at me as if trying to recognize someone she hadn't seen for a very long time. I stared back at her. She suddenly slapped me across the face. I was stunned. She had never before hit me. Tears sprang to my eyes. I stepped back. You should love me as much as you love Mr. Adair. I am your child. I am the only one you will ever have, I said. I could see that my words hit her like stones. She did not speak. I ran from the room. My face stung where she had slapped me. I ran to my room and closed the door behind me. I threw myself onto my bed and cried. I cried and cried until I fell asleep. I slept for at least an hour. I was woken by Sean. Aoife, are you ill? he asked. I was embarrassed and hoped that my eyes were not still swollen from crying. I sat up. I didn't look directly at Sean because I knew that if I did, he would know that I was hiding something from him. I was just tired, I lied. Aoife, get out of bed. The sheriff just arrived with Mr. Adair and Mr. Murray, he said excitedly. I jumped out of bed.